Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> I'm glad <clears throat> I'm glad you're here. How many of you stayed up and watched the game last night? Yeah. And how many of you about the sixth or seventh inning remembered what happened the night before? <laughs> When the Astros were ahead by five to something, and then it went down, went south. Well, the good news is they're not playing tonight. Uh, we can do something else. So welcome to those of you who are here, and for those of you who are online. Um, I want to thank Joshua and Tim, who are back there working things. Thank you, guys. And for those of you who are online, if you're within a 25-mile radius of this place, consider next week showing up in person. Um, next Sunday, Dr. Jeff McDonald, our senior pastor, is going to be uh, speaking. By next Sunday, the Texas Annual Conference will know who its new bishop is going to be. So I titled uh, Jeff's talk, what in the UMC is going on? And <laughs> maybe he can come and we'll find out about what, what is happening. I want to thank you all um, for the love and support that you are offering to me and to Sherry during this transition time. Um, I'll just give you an update. My children are back in the will. Uh, <laughs> Uh, my son and then my daughter and her daughter and then my son's wife came to our house yesterday and helped us do humongous amount of work. We cleaned out our garage, the crawl spaces, arranged new internet service for the apartment. Uh, it's just it's amazing and they're coming back today to continue. So it's making the transition much, much, much easier. So thank you very much. So it's going well. Um, I don't think I have any other announcement. Um, so let's um, let's begin in silence. Just do what it takes for you to be in the space. And my earnest hope and prayer is that you get what you're looking for by being here today and that no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are, you are welcome, welcome here. here. I'm not going to introduce our speaker because, or uh, the person who's sitting next to me, because <laughs> she's going to, the talk itself is going to be introduction and you will learn about uh, Stephanie Warfield who currently lives in Austin, but is soon to be back in Sweden. You'll hear about that. Stephanie and I have known each other for a long time, before Ordinary Life even came into existence. But when Ordinary Life did come into existence, this woman, who you will learn is a skilled graphic artist and a wordsmith and all of that, designed the first logo for Ordinary Life and... It looked like that. That was it. Yeah. Pretty ordinary. Yeah. I think the chair is appropriate. Why? Because that's ordinary life, sitting and being present. I would change one thing there. What? Inhabiting the kingdom within rather than kingdom. The kingdom. The kingdom. See, this is an example of what I mean. So, um, Stephanie and I had talked periodically, but in, in preparing for today, a couple of weeks ago, when I asked her if she could be here and if she would speak, and I said, and I'll create a keynote presentation <laughs> and share it with you. And she said, what's keynote? And I was speechless. I thought the Zoom frame had frozen. Because <laughs> he, he was just sitting there stunned. <laughs> Because here's somebody who's made her living. She's 
published several books, uh, which you'll hear about, and she's a wordsmith, a graphic artist and everything, and she didn't know about the Macintosh version of PowerPoint. Mm -mm. And so uh, I nonetheless created a keynote, and your learning curve was fast. Yeah, it had to be. <laughs> when you asked me, I'm like, ah! <laughs> okay, so she put pictures up, and you're going to talk us through these. I am. There's one. So this is probably one of the happiest days of my life. Today? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm in panic mode here. Um, but, you know, as Bill reminds us, we have a moral obligation to be happy. So this was one of those days. This is my interfaith ordination at the Chaplaincy Institute in Berkeley, California. Oh, I felt deeply loved by everyone in attendance, but most especially by Bill and Sherry and by dear friends Fern and Ollie. These four beautiful people were and still are my truest family. As you can see, Bill was giving me my charge for ministry and Fern had uh, created my ordination outfit. And I was celebrating my 52nd birthday. But Bill's and my journey began long before 2005. So, so this is a personal story, a peek into my ordinary life, and at least what I know to be true today. So there's the question. Yeah. How did you and I first get together? Well, how did I find St. Paul's? Um, St. Paul's was my sister's church. Vicki, better known as Spud to the family because she loved potatoes, <laughs> received a cancer diagnosis during her pregnancy with her one and only child. Her son, Kevin, never had an opportunity to know her. He was less than two years old when she died at age 31 on March 25th, 1988. I observed the love and gentle care she received from so many, from all of the St. Paul's ministers at th that time, Wayne Day, Jim Welch, Terry Thompson, and from her Stephen minister, Gail Williford. The day before Spud was released from Herman Hospital into home hospice, I flew from Connecticut to be with her. I stayed with her overnight in the hospital where we shared laughter and tears and favorite stories like two schoolgirls giggling and teasing one another. Two days later, in the living room of her home, I witnessed her grand mal seizure and never heard her laughter or words again. I witnessed the ongoing dysfunction of family, alcoholic parents, divorced and married to others, my brother who didn't know how to be present and kept disappearing all the time, my sister's husband and his family who seemed to always speak so loudly, and my sister's beautiful one-and-a-half-year-old son who needed his own loving care. We attempted to come together, albeit briefly, in our love for Spud. Fighting happened anyway. As for mind and spirit class, uh, I don't know how I found it. Maybe it found me. I do remember the very first time I visited, you were sharing stories about the Grand Canyon. And there was so much laughter. I had no idea that a Sunday school class could be filled with abundant laughter. So that's a question. It is a question. You and I started sitting together a long time ago. We did. So what brought me to that? the disillusion of a beloved marriage to Perry House. He had been my art instructor at the Art Institute of Houston. He had a young daughter and was not married, and we fell into love with abundant laughter and magical storytelling. He was one of the first persons ever to say, I love you on a daily basis. He taught art at HCC, and I became a graphic designer. And then he got very sick. The doctor said it was kidney cancer. On the day of his diagnosis, he pro proposed to me from his hospital bed, and we joked that I could not say no to a dying man. So we got married on April 12, 1986, in the backyard of dear artist friends and lovingly surrounded by the Houston art community. 
It was a grand celebration of healing and love, and life was great until it wasn't. Perry and I moved to Connecticut. His daughter and her mother moved to Alaska. My sister died, and Perry and I both got homesick for Texas, so we moved back to Houston one year later with no jobs. Eventually, Perry went back to teaching at HCC, and I finally got a job as art director at Pennzoil. Perry's mom died, and my father died within the next year. We bought a beautiful home in the Heights, and a few months later, I was laid off from work. And Perry's teenage daughter began living with us. We became full-time parents with no clue how to do this well. In truth, we all acted like adolescents, trying to figure out life and where we fit in. No one was happy. We muddled through, barely. Easter weekend, 1995, I began hemorrhaging and was rushed to St. Luke's Episcopal Hospital. One month later, I had a hysterectomy, and Perry began having an affair with a mutual friend of ours. No one, no friend. Yeah. It devastated and surprised both of us, truly both of us. We received counseling from Bill separately. Perry moved out. He moved back. We made one final trip together to London. And while there, I lost my voice, a telling metaphor of a greater truth unrecognized by me at the time. Mm -hmm. It was not the journey either of us had hoped for. We returned to Houston. He moved out again. Guilt would overtake him. He would drink too much and end up on the front porch of our home begging me to let him in, and I would receive him once again. So much conflicted love. I was at a breaking point. Two days later, or no, two days after the fall teaching semester began, Perry told me he was moving out. When he left for work that morning, I swallowed a bottle of pills. I called St. Paul's to talk to Terry Thompson. He was not available, so I spoke with Jim Bankston. Before I knew it, Terry was at my home to do a suicide intervention. He drove me to St. Luke's. ICU three, bed three. I spent two and a half days there before being taken to a psych hospital. Although I hated all of it at the time, I was filled with anger and fear, and I, was to I felt totally useless and totally unloved. It was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. I felt unloved, but it was an act of love that placed me there. I was locked up, but I was also taken care of, and I needed that desperately. I was mad, but it was the only way to stay sane. I didn't want to die. I wanted to be heard. Others had been listening. Now I began to listen. It was Labor Day weekend of 1996. Writing about this later, during my clinical training at St. Luke's, I wrote, in attempting to silence myself, I made the loudest noise I had ever made. And I want to tell you of another curious event that happened in the ICU there. I wasn't allowed to get up or move around. My room was not an actual room, but one curtained off from other patients in the same ICU. A nurse walked in and asked me if I wanted a bath. She brought in a warm tub of water, closed the curtains, and worked on cleaning me up a bit. She asked why I was here, and I told her my story. I remember her saying, no man was worth this much trouble. <laughs> she asked if I read the Bible. Bits and pieces, not much, I said. She tended my words and my wounds. When she left, I fell asleep. And upon awakening, I noticed a Bible had been placed at the foot of my bed. I pushed the call button. A different nurse responded. I asked if I could talk to the earlier nurse, the one who had bathed me and cared for me so gently. I wanted to thank her. There was no nurse by this name in this unit of the hospital. Yes, there is, I said. She's been taking care of me. There was no nurse. The day I was released from the psych hospital, a healing service was scheduled at St. Paul's that evening. I attended because I was surrounded by loving friends, especially Fern. It is curious how life slips back into something resembling normal so quickly. 
After the service, we went out for ice cream, and Fern stayed in my home that evening, so I would not be alone. I had a therapy session with Bill the next day. How did Bill help me heal? He listened, and then he listened more to tears, to silence, and to stories I had never shared and never fully understood. He loved me into finally loving myself. He listened me into a place where I could finally hear myself, my sorrows, my joys, my deeper and deepening truths. He reminded me not to abandon myself as others had. I remember you telling me, I have never lost a client to suicide and you are not going to be the first. Right. Yeah. I remember some of our hour-long appointments where I mostly cried and you held those tears. At our first appointment, you asked me if I kept a journal. And I responded, why would I waste paper? I have nothing to say. Over the years, I have wasted a lot of paper and it's never been a waste. I have great gratitude for all of the trees who have been sacrificed on my behalf. (laughs) One of the things I wanted in my time with you was to be able to travel alone. Travel was always with a husband, the extrovert who would gather people around both of us. And as an introvert and an often insecure, shy person, it was unthinkable that I would have the courage to explore on my own. You also helped me know that family could be found in others, in the people who love me differently from my family of origin. St. Paul's was family. Beloved friends were family. While working for Ronald McDonald House, the children would often visit my office filled with toys and stuffed animals, art supplies and games. One young girl I dearly loved named Kayla would sit with me for long periods of time. One day she asked if I had children. I said no. She thought for a brief moment and then spoke again. Yes, you do. You have all of us. In the intervening years between my divorce in 1998 and the ordination in 2005 and today, I discovered a call to pastoral ministry with Bill's help. God accepted into the chaplaincy program at St. Luke's, the same hospital of my suicide event. I attended Union Theological Seminary, came back to the clinical program at St. Luke's, and then began commuter studies at Holy Names University in Oakland, California. I began a year-long program of interface studies toward ordination, a requirement if I wanted to keep working as a healthcare chaplain. I loved being a chaplain, but my residency at St. Luke's had ended. So eventually I began volunteering at Ronald McDonald House, and then they created a position for me there called Family Assistance Coordinator. It was here in the summer of 2005 that I met Malik and Mustafa, and a whirlwind romance began. Malik had come to the U.S. with his nephew Mustafa, 17 years of age, who had been kidnapped and tortured in Iraq. He was being treated for nerve damage in his arm. A couple of months later, Malik proposed to me. I didn't know him well, but the greater risk was saying no. He was like no one I had ever met before. When we first met, he kissed my hand. Wow. He was offering a grand adventure. So I said yes, and Bill officiated our wedding in the Texas Medical Center on October 31st, Halloween. Right. Uh, Yes. I remember. I dressed up as a bride and Malik dressed up as a groom. (laughs) Yeah. We had one month together before Malik had to return to Iraq. I want to say Malik was, is, uh, although he's in poor health right now, he, he, he may be one of the more generous people I know. He's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. When he would come, 
uh, and we would have you all over or get together in any situation. Uh, he would have a gift for Sherry mm -hmm. and a gift for me. Yeah. Yeah. He's just like that. He recently, when I'll talk about that, but uh, even with his doctor, he brought a gift to his doctor. He's like, we're not supposed to accept gifts. Malik said, I have to give you a gift. You've helped me heal. So, um, where am I? Oh, yeah. Malik had to return to Iraq. His humanitarian visa would not allow a longer stay despite our marriage. So we began a two-year-long process of getting him a U.S. residency. I moved to Austin to work as a chaplain for the Seton Cancer Care Team, caring for mostly low-income, homeless, and uninsured folks in our outpatient clinic. Once again, I loved being a chaplain and serving people with such great needs. Later, I began teaching at Seton Cove Spirituality Center until I retired in 2018. I traveled to Amman, Jordan three times to see Malik and for our appointment with the U.S. Embassy to plead our case for his safe return to the U.S. On the fourth visit, I was finally able to escort him back to the U.S. We, where we settled into daily life together. When Malik finally received his U.S. citizenship, after many delays and appeals, we celebrated by traveling to Sweden to visit his sister. No need for a special visa this time. That's, yeah, oh, good. That's his citizenship. That was another glorious day. In 2018, I retired from Seton Cove and moved to Sweden to live in the home of Malik's sister, Kifa. I believed it would be easier for all of us to live there together and escape the politics of the U.S. But Sweden had taken in many refugees and didn't understand why someone from the U.S. wanted to immigrate to Sweden. I said to the woman at the mi migration board who was handling my case, have you seen what is happening in my country? I wasn't granted extra time. I am able to visit for 90 days, and then I must travel out for another 90 days, and this has become my nomadic lifestyle until COVID, when I begrudgingly resettled in Austin for now. Yep. You done that? Yep. Okay. That's us. I love these pictures. Okay, uh, you may have heard this if you watch online or mm -hmm. anything. This is a question I have for you. <laughs> <laughs> what is your daily spiritual practice? Do I have one? Oh, I have to. Okay. Art. If I am not sitting at an art table because of travel or busyness, I remember that the day itself is art. I create my day. We all do. Everyone here creates their day. Do you want to explain these? Um, those were actually created, oh golly, so long ago. When I was taking a printmaking class here at the Glissell School, these became part of a book that helped me heal Perry's and my divorce. By the way, uh, you, uh, and if some of you may or may not know this, but in my office, offices, because it started uh, when I had an office on the West Loop when we first mm -hmm. got together, and then I moved to another office in Alabama and then moved here, and I've had one, two, three, four offices here. But now I've one that I just love. I, I love it's perfect for me, and and uh, every place there is hung the catfish print that you made. <laughs> yeah. She made a catfish print for me. Cat being a feminine symbol, fish first symbol of the church, the cat. And then when she took it off the printer, it tore, torn two, and so then she deliberately tore it and made a print of that and put them together so that the torn pieces are on the left, then the split piece, and then the whole piece on the right. It's a great metaphor for spiritual work. But you didn't intend it to come out that way. Maybe I did. Maybe you did. I'm not going to argue with you about 
anybody who has this kind of creativity and can do the kind of work. What's this? Those are, um, oh, that's when I got stuck in Austin because of COVID. And I love finding books at those little tiny libraries, you know, that, where you can get a free book. And this book was Around the World in 90 Days. So I thought, I'm going to have a conversation with the author. And that's what I do. I get six-word poems out of it and then create art around it. And these are from 2021, again, stuck in Austin. I love Austin, but. Um, and that's a daily practice of collage and found poetry within a printed book, and then with the next one, weaving it all together. Yeah. And this is the current project that's kind of put on hold because of things, events lately. But back in Lent of this year, I started reimagining the Psalms. So I'm making them a little shorter because some of them are so doggone wordy. I'm like, nobody has the time to read this. So I'm making them shorter and doing a collage with them. Um, the first image is from my daily walks during COVID. I give myself assignments on my walks. Like that whole thing was find lines. Just find lines, vertical lines, horizontal lines, diagonal lines. And then I wrote a reflection for each photo. Uh, X marks the spot, first COVID shot. <laughs> uh, and then there's these are just other books. Um, the 365 one, words and images, was from 2017 with the devastating results of the presidential election, which I'll talk about in a minute, I think. Now, I've purchased these, too. These are for sale. They are. Yeah. Uh, they're self-published through Blurb. Okay. Yeah. So um, people have often asked why I work in collage. And until recently, I didn't have a good answer for that. Lately, I'm thinking it is because collage is a collection of torn pieces, bits of color and pattern, some covered up, some slightly revealed, all layered together to create the final image. And this is how I also look at life. We are walking collages of events that have layered our daily living, some moments celebrated, some torn fragments, and yet all of them together create the collage of the person we are becoming. I like that. So here's a question for you. It's about how you work through moments of suffering now. Mm -hmm. Because um, I know you talk about a lot of family of origin pain, the pain of you and Perry. And by the way, Perry died like three years ago. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And um, so you got advice for people about working through suffering? Well, one of my silly advice is stop watching television. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I, that happened at St. Paul's when I finally gave up television at the time waster, I think. Um, and I don't need to receive all that news. I mean, I don't, I'm not ignorant of what's going on, but uh, it's too much. So this is a bit of a story about how I deal with suffering now. Because 1988 was the year my sister died. 1996 was the year my marriage died and I attempted suicide. Well, 2019 was another year filled with a tremendous grief. Another divorce. This time I responded differently. And another death, the death of Perry. Why did my marriage to Malagant? The reasons are bigger than the pettiness of daily living. It was hard for him to live and love in a country that mostly viewed him and our family as terrorists. Both he and my nephew had bank accounts suddenly closed because of their Arabic-sounding names. Like me, he struggles with mental health issues and has experienced more devastation and death in his beloved country than we can ever imagine. I have never visited his homeland, and I would dearly love to see it to experience it, and to know the places that have created his generosity and love for our shattered world. I would love to understand more fully the incredible resilience of people who have endured war and greater suffering than I have known. 
His family is scattered all over the world. None of them wanted to leave their homeland. People don't show up here because I want to be here. Who wants to leave their home? So I can tell you that when I was getting to know Malik, and uh, Malik's an engineer, mm -hmm. <clears throat> speaks three languages, mm -hmm. um, had a business in Iraq, <clears throat> had a farmland mm -hmm. outside of Iraq, beautiful, raised horses. Yeah, outside of Baghdad. It was in, outside of Baghdad. In Ur, Nasaria. In the Bible, as he kept saying, Stephanie, I'm in your Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember after we got to know each other and after the United States invaded Iraq, his sitting in my office with tears running down his face, talking about his homeland and saying, we had it better under Saddam. Yeah. That's a perspective yeah. to kind of hang on to. <sighs> We can change it. So 2019, the year I said yes in the midst of overwhelming no's, consuming me in grief. Malik and I divorced in February of that year. I carefully planned a mostly solo pilgrimage through England, Wales, Scotland, and South Africa for 122 days beginning in July to write to walk, to create art, and to heal in solitude with myself and with whatever showed up along the way. A lot can show up over 122 days. In August, while in London, I learned Perry had died. Our very last journey together had been to London. Another synchronous moment, the fall retreat I had booked on Iona with Judith Tripp. It was at St. Paul's when I first met her during a women's labyrinth retreat after my suicide attempt and impending divorce. Walking the cloth labyrinth in St. Paul's gym alone and late at night, I finally removed the wedding ring from my finger. Sherry was my group leader. And the word our group reflected upon was trust. In this 2019 pilgrimage, I would be meeting Judith Tripp again and be in the midst of yet another divorce. Life is full of surprises. So this walking pilgrimage, I love these red boots. I've actually written a love story to these boots. <laughs> this walking pilgrimage was hard. For most of the journey, I traveled alone, exploring cities and history never visited before. Mostly, I explored myself. I carried three journals, an art journal and two writing journals, and I created a private Facebook group for sharing photos and personal reflections. Others traveled with me virtually. It was a magnificent journey. And when I reread my writings from that time, I am reminded that grief had a stranglehold on me. August 10th, Glasgow. Love, what is it exactly? Can it be pinned down and measured? Is it both big and small, like moments held tenderly, briefly, and then remembered forever? As for me, I'm still learning how to love. Grief has captured me, tortured me, and held me for ransom. Will I pay the fee it requires for my freedom for my release, I close my eyes and listen. Love. Grief held me, but so did art and mystery and the ancient footsteps of others who had walked this similar journey and survived or not. I cried a lot. I wrote a lot. I met strangers who generously offered their life stories and slowly, step by step, I began healing again. What this? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> this is Malik and me and his other ex-wife in Big Bend. Yeah, I've got to interrupt you because I know from our talking over a long time, even before we started talking about today, that Malik 
says he makes a better friend than a husband mm -hmm. and that you are friends with his ex-wife mm -hmm. with whom he currently lives mm -hmm. and that you, the three of you go out to dinner together. Mm -hmm. And we live in the same apartment community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know. People say I need to write a book about that. <laughs> Well, it is an unusual, it is an unusual story. But it, this is also part of the Muslim culture. If you're a part of the family, you're a part of the family forever. It's just, I, he feels a moral obligation to take care of both of us. So that's how we are now. We're dear friends. My biggest regret with Perry is we never found a way to share conversation again, to love one another differently. Malik and I have done that. Wow, that's we great. Yeah, we travel together, and we have a great time. She's a great cook. I hate to cook. So I plan the adventure. Malik pays for it, and she cooks. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. While traveling solo this summer in Ireland, a phone message showed up from Malik telling me he had suffered a stroke and a heart attack. So I cut my trip short to return to Austin. I had to be here. He's doing well. Yeah. And we even voted last week. <laughs> so how do I get through suffering? One step at a time, one glue stick at a time, one breath at a time. Grace, one moment at a time. It's always present. And Above all, I stay curious and I remind myself of what I told this young girl. That's me. Hold my hand and I will show you more happiness than you have ever known and I will not abandon you as others have. That's one of the things I recommend to people is that you find a picture of yourself somewhere around the ages of five, six, seven and put it in a place where you can see it and um, continue to take care of that person. That's how this came about. You asked me that question. Yeah. What would you tell that little girl within you? And I remember in tears, I said, I would take her hand and I will never let go. And I'll show her more joy than she has ever known. You've done that. Oh, yeah. Okay, so, um, you know, we're talking about making the already sacred journey sacred, and I know it's kind of a word game to talk about where do you find the sacred, since the sacred is everywhere, but where do you find the sacred? Oh, everywhere. I mean, truly, and I do mean that. Um, this summer in Sheffield, England, a place I'm visiting because of the pandemic where I met with a group of people on Zoom uh, through Library Sheffield, where we did poetry writing twice a month. I had to get up at 4.30 in the morning to join. Best experience. Oh, it was free, and I finally got, we broke free from the Zoom frames, and I got to meet these people in Sheffield. But while there, and making a, 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 an important decision for myself, I walked by a shop window and saw these words, don't feel bad about doing what's right for you. Here's another curious sign. Every time I drive to Houston, I mean, seriously, every time I drive to Houston, the check engine light appears on my car. Really? Yeah, what's that about? It means you need to check your engine. I think it's the potholes, but other than that, I listen to wind and rain and birds and night sounds in the dis desert. I eavesdrop on conversations, not to be a voyeur, but to listen to wisdom. I mean, it's amazing how that happens. I, I walk a labyrinth near my home in Austin, and I sometimes sit in the middle of the labyrinth, and I have a question, and I'll hear a conversation outside the labyrinth. It's exactly what I need to hear. I have to be open to hearing that, though. I love when that happens. And, Bill, if I had to choose one book to recommend. What made you bring that up? Oh, because I think you recommend like five books every Sunday. If I had to choose one book to recommend, 
it would be a good dictionary. With a dictionary, you learn to write your own story, and that's a great beginning toward an incredible ending. So do you know the Irish poet whose name I cannot pronounce? Padre Gotuma? Yeah. Yeah. You know him? Yeah. So during uh, COVID, I, I read um, his stuff. Yeah. He's wonderful. He's awesome. And what he... Um, what his writing encouraged me to do was to buy a really good dictionary of etymology. Yeah. yeah. I didn't own one, and I know you can Google stuff and all that, but I wanted a really good yeah. dictionary of etymology, so I looked it up. And <clears throat> I am so grateful that I did because I love to know. I, I love words. I've loved words ever since my mom being a senior high school English teacher or just we didn't grow up with the TV, so the words and reading and all yeah. that came to me. Words mean a whole lot to me. And in getting ready for today, a couple of weeks ago, after you agreed that you would be here, I thought what I wanted to do was to look up the word odyssey. Uh -huh. Because you have been on an incredible odyssey. Mm -hmm. The word comes from the odyssey, by the way. I know doesn't have much of a history. But you know, the other thing you wrote in the, I think in the email that went out, you called me a spiritual nomad. I've never used that term for myself, but all of a sudden I went, oh, I'm no, no longer mad. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's cool. I'm adopting that. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a little crazy, but that's okay. It's a good kind. Well, to be fair, you did uh, say that you were going to ask me a question. I did. Okay. Yeah. Am I going to escape that? Yeah, you can escape. Yeah. They'll be curious. Well, I asked him if he only had one book that he could recommend. Only one. What would it be? Yeah. You can save it for another time. No, I'm, I will answer it. it was, it's easy to do. Okay. Man's Search for Meaning. Okay. By Victor Frankl. Yeah. If you had one book to read, uh, read the book. Read it now. Yeah. Um, it was the first, well, a book by Eric Erickson may have been first. But I think, no, I'm pretty sure, when I went into clinical training in the hospital, that was the first book assigned mm -hmm. for us to read, was Man's Search for Meaning. Mm -hmm. And um, if you don't know it, for, just get past the sexist language. Yeah. Um, I've now studied twice with a man that Victor Frankl literally gave his, um, his American uh, lineage and heritage to, um, a man, by the way, is from Abilene. Um, Victor Frankl had an opportunity to immigrate to the United States with his pregnant wife, but refused to do that because he stayed with his mom and dad. Mm -hmm. They lived in the same house together. They were arrested by the Nazis. His wife was pregnant. His mother, father, and brother were all taken the same day, and he did not find out until three years later that all of them were executed the next day. Mm -hmm. And he was kept alive because he was a doctor and might be useful mm -hmm. to the, the, the people. This story is, this story is incredible. Um, you should read it. So let's do these photos. This was my 66th birthday at Kew Gardens. Is that a martini? Uh, no, I forget the name of it. The Dowager. <laughs> it was. I imagined myself as the Dowager in Downton Abbey that day. That was such a lovely, I love Kew Gardens. Did you eat all of that? I did. High tea. <laughs> I don't remember the name of that restaurant, but it's at Kew Gardens, one of my favorite places in London. And I specifically went there for my birthday because I was traveling alone. People are like, aren't you going to be sad? You're celebrating your birthday alone. I'm like, no, I'm walking in nature. The plants there are so gorgeous. I sat down and I had a favorite waiter there who I said, it's my birthday today. And he said, okay. He brought at the top, I think there's a cupcake with a candle in it and people in the restaurant saying happy birthday to me. Complete strangers. I was boo-hooing. It was a beautiful day. That's in South Africa. 
uh, some people traveling with me on that journey had this banner to live a great story. That was an amazing journey. Whew. Mm, loved it. This is also in South Africa. I carry two letters with me, the letter U and the letter I, U and I traveling together. So I photograph the letter U and I wherever I go so that I'm not traveling alone. I know someone's there with me. And this, ooh-wee, December 2019 for winter solstice. I took the train from Gothenburg, Sweden up to the Arctic Circle to Abisko. It was like 24-7 darkness. I loved it. I wasn't cold. This, I was dressed here to get ready to go on a dog sled ride. It was great. Also, you have, you know, if, since it's dark most of the day, I mean, so, uh, maybe we had like two or four hours darkness, uh, light, but it's a muted light. So you get up for breakfast in darkness and it's candlelit breakfast. So you, everybody looks beautiful. <laughs> you know, it's just a softer light. I, it was more snow than I'd ever seen in my whole life and less snow than they had experienced that year. That's a telling sign. So what do you like about Sweden? Oh gosh, everything. There are dedicated walking paths and dedicated biking paths. You're not gonna get hit by somebody. I love that I don't understand the language because I make up conversations. <laughs> my favorite island there, which if any of my Swedish friends are watching, I will mangle how you say it, Fronier. It's off the coast of Gothenburg in the southern archipelago. It's the last ferry boat stop. There's no cars on that island. So you walk that island and it's incredibly peaceful. I could live there forever. I mean, you know, you can get stuff and by ferry boat you can get back into the city. It's just, it's so nourishing. And the peace is just, it's amazing. Yeah, I love it. I love it, love it, love it. And the, this is no credit to me, but there is no way in the world that you could have imagined when we first got together that you would be here. Yeah, no. When I first attended Mind and Spirit, I sat at the very back. Uh, there was no way I was going to be sitting here, and there was no way I was going to be able to travel. I just, I was like, how can I do that? Those of you sitting in the back, are you listening to this? <laughs> You never know what's going to happen. Yeah, to you. you never know. You could be right here. This could happen. It's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful, wonderful journey. Well, and here's what I, here's my ending or my beginning. My sister's death brought me to St. Paul's and this saved my life. I have so many people and animals to thank for loving me into healing. As Bill reminds us, this solitary work we cannot do alone. I have abundant gratitude for in incredible people here at St. Paul's and St. Luke's Hospital, beloved women friends, Fern and Kathy and Pam and Hannah and everyone in my Thursday morning group and so many other friends and strangers. Three men have offered me life and love lessons, some pleasant and some not so pleasant. Perry honored my path to become an artist. Bill gave me a path to become a writer and to begin healing wounding I didn't know I had. Malik gave me the world, the gift of travel to places I never imagined visiting, and a wider vision of our shared world so that I could know, truly know, that home is everywhere. I have lived with an incessant search for home. It was during COVID and the travel of this past summer that I finally realized the world is my home. I have family and scattered brokenness all over this world. My heart home is everywhere. I have a current favorite poem that reads like this. It's titled Confess by Alice Luterman. I stalked her in the grocery store. Oh shoot, it just went away. I stalked her in the grocery store, her crown of snowy braids held in place by a great silver clip, her erect bearing radiating tenderness, the way she placed yogurt and avocados in her basket, beaming peace like the North Star. 
I wanted to ask, what aisle did you find your serenity in? Do you know how to be married for 50 years or how to live alone? Excuse me for interrupting, but you seem to possess some knowledge that makes the earth burn and turn on its axis. But we don't request such things from strangers nowadays. So I said, I love your hair. Despite all of the ups and downs and because of them, I can honestly say I love my life. The mantra I wrote for myself during clinical training when I was asked to sum up the chaplaincy year in one sentence is this, listen softly and carry a big heart. Listen softly to yourself and wrap yourself in big love. Listen softly, tenderly to others and embrace them in big love when you are able. What aisle did you find your serenity in? Do you know how to be married for 50 years or how to live alone? Excuse me for interrupting, but you seem to possess some knowledge that makes the earth burn and turn on its axis. But we don't request such things from strangers nowadays. So I said, I love your hair. I love you, Bill. I love you too, Stephanie. Thank you so much. Oh, thank, thank you, you all. so much for being here. I, 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 won't add a, I won't add a thing except to say that this is an example of somebody who did her work. It continues. It continues for dead. all of us. That's the hopeful thing. Yeah. That it's carry a big heart. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for Thank being you. here. And for those of you, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, be careful to watch your step this week because you carry precious cargo and I'll see you here next week. Thank you.